Chapter One of Snowdrift: A Story of the Land of the Strong Cold by James B. Hendricks. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Roger Moline. Snowdrift by James B. Hendricks. Chapter One: Coarse Gold. As Carter Brent pushed through the swinging doors of the Ore Dump Saloon, the eyes of the head bartender swept with approval from the soles of the high-laced boots to the crown of the jauntily tilted Stetson. "'What'll it be this morning, Mr. Brent?' he greeted. "'Little eye-opener?' The young man grinned as he crossed to the bar. "'How did you guess it?' the bartender set out decanter and glasses well after last night thought maybe you'd have a kind of fuzzy taste in your mouth fuzzy is right my tongue is coated with fur dark brown fur thick and soft what time was it when we left here must have been around two o'clock but how does it come you ain't on the works this morning Never knew you to lose a day on account of a hangover. Heard a couple of the S&R's tunnels got flooded last night. Brent poured a liberal drink and downed it at a swallow. Yes, he answered dryly, and that's why I'm not on the works. I'm hunting a job, and the S&R is hunting a new mining engineer. Jepson fired you, did he? well you should worry i've heard him talking in here now and then some of the big guns and they all claim you're one of the best engineers in montana they say if you'd buckle down to business you'd have em all skinned buckle down to business eh the trouble with them is that when they hire a man they think they buy him it's none of their damn business what i do evenings if I'm sober when I'm on the job, and on the job six days a week and sometimes seven, they're getting all they're paying for. They sure are, agreed the other with emphasis. Have another shot. He shoved the decanter toward the younger man and leaned closer. Say, Mr. Brent, you ain't, uh, you don't need a little change, do you? If you do, just say so. You're welcome to it. The man drew forth a roll of bills, but Brent shook his head. No, thanks. You can cash this check for me, though. Jepson was square enough about it. Paid me in full to date and threw in a month's salary in advance. I don't blame him any. We quit the best of friends. When he hired me, he knew I liked a little drink now and then, so I took the job with the understanding that if the outfit ever lost a dollar because of my boozing, I was through right then. What was it flooded the tunnels? Water, grinned Brent. Oh, laughed the bartender. I thought maybe it was booze. You'd have thought so all the more if you'd been there this morning to hear the temperance lecture that old Jepson threw in gratis, along with that extra month's pay. About the tunnels, we get our power from Anaconda, and something happened to the high-tension wire, and the pumps stopped. 
and there wasn't any light, and number four and number six are wet tunnels anyway, so they filled up and drowned two batteries of drills. Then, instead of rigging a steam pump and pumping them out through number four, one of the shipped bosses rigged a fifteen-inch rotary in number six and started her going full tilt, with the result that he ran the water down against that new piece of railroad grade and washed about fifty feet of it into the river and left the track hanging in the air by the rails. The damn fool! Oh, I don't know. He did the best he could. A shift boss isn't hired to think. What did old Jepson fire you for? He didn't think you climb up and cut the high-tension wire, did he? Or did he expect you to sit around nights and keep the juice flowing? Brent laughed. Not exactly. But they tried to find me and couldn't. So when I showed up this morning, old Jepson sent for me and asked me where I was last night. I could have lied out of it easy enough. He would have accepted any one of a half a dozen excuses, but Lyon's poor business. So I told him I was out having a hell of a good time and wound up about three in the morning with a pretty fair snootful. Bet he thinks a damn sight more of you than if you'd have lied at that. But there's plenty of jobs for you. You've got it in your noodle, what they need, and what they've got to pay to get. You might drop around and talk to Gunnison, of the little Ella. He was growling in here the other night because he couldn't get hold of an engineer. Gonna do a lot of cross-tunnel work or something. Said he was afraid he'd have to send back east and get some pilgrim, or some kid just out of college. Hold on a minute. There's a bird down there, among them hard rock men, that looks like he was figuring on starting something. I'll just step down and put a flea in his ear. Brent's eyes followed the other as he made his way toward the rear of the long bar, where three or four bartenders were busy serving drinks to a crowd of miners. He noticed casually that the men were divided into small groups, and that they seemed to be talking excitedly among themselves, and that the talk was mostly in whispers. The ore dump was essentially a mining man's saloon. Its proprietor, Patsy Kelleher, was an old-time miner who, having struck it lucky with pick and shovel, had started a modest little saloon and later had opened the ore dump, in the fitting up of which he had gone the limit in expensive furnishings. It was his boast that no miner had ever gone out of his door hungry or thirsty, nor had any man ever lost a cent by unfair means within his four walls. Rumor had it that Patsy had given away thousands. Be that as it may, the ore dump had for years been the mecca of the mining fraternity. Millionaire mine owners, managers, engineers, and on down through the list to the humblest hunk were served at its long bar, which had, by common usage, become divided by invisible lines of demarcation. The mine owners, the managers, the engineers, and the independent contractors foregathered at the front end of the bar, the hunks and the wops and the guineas at the rear end, while the long space between 
was a sort of no-man's land, where drank the shift bosses and the artisans of the mines, the hard rock men, the electricians, and the steam fitters. Combinations of capital running into millions had been formed at the front end, and combination of labor at the rear, while in no man's land great mines had been tied up at the crooking of a finger. On this particular morning, Carter Brent was the only customer at the front end of the bar. He poured another drink and watched it glow like a thing of life with soft amber lights that played through the crystal-clear glass as a thin streak of sunlight struck aslant the bar. The liquor in his stomach was taking hold. He felt warm with a glowing, tingling warmth that permeated to his fingertips. In his mind was a vast sense of well-being. The world was a great old place to live in. He drank the whiskey in his glass and refilled it from the cut-glass decanter. Poor old Jepson fired the best engineer in Montana. That's what his friend the bartender had just told him, and he got it from the big guns. Well, it was Jepson's funeral. He and the S.N.R. would have to stagger along as best they could. He would go and see Gunnison. No, to hell with Gunnison. Brent's fingers closed about the roll of bills in his trousers pocket. He had plenty of money. He would wait and pick out a job. He needn't worry. He always was sure of a good job. Hadn't he had five in the two years since he graduated from college? There were plenty of mines, and they all needed good engineers. Brent smiled as his thoughts drifted lazily back to his four years in college. He wished some of the fellows would drop in. They were a bunch of damned good sports, he muttered to himself. And we sure did roll em high. Speedy Bennett was always the first to go under. About two drinks, and we'd lay him on the shelf to call for when needed. Then came McGivern, then Sullivan, and about that time little Morse would begin flapping his arms around and proclaiming he could fly. Then, after a while, there wouldn't be anyone left but Maury and me. Good old Maury. They canned him in his senior year, and they've been canning me ever since. Brent paused in his soliloquy and regarded the men who had been whispering among themselves toward the rear of the room. There were no small groups now, and no whispering. With tense faces they were crowding about a man who stood with hands palmed down upon the bar. He wondered what it was all about. From his position at the head of the bar he could see the man's face plainly. Also, he could see the faces of the others, the lined, rugged faces of the hard rock and the vapid, loose-lipped faces of the wops, and of all the faces, only the face of the man who stood with his hands on the bar betrayed nothing of tense expectancy. Why were these others crowding about him, and why was he the only man of them all who was not holding in check, by visible effort, some pent-up emotion? Brent glanced again into the weather-lined face with its drooping sun-burned mustache 
and its skin tanned to the color of old leather, a strong face, one would say, the face of a man who had battled long against odds and won. Won what, he wondered? For an instant the man's eyes met his own, and it seemed to Brent as though he had read the question, for surely, behind the long drooping mustache, the lips twisted into just the shadow of a cynical grin. The head bartender stepped to the back bar, and, from beside a huge gilded cash register, he lifted a set of tiny scales which he carried to the bar and set down directly before the man with the sunburned mustache. In front of the bar men crowded closer, craning their necks and elbowing one another as their feet made soft shuffling sounds upon the hardwood floor. One of the man's hands slipped into a side pocket of his coat, and when it came out, something thudded heavily upon the bar. Brent saw the object plainly as the bartender reached for it, a small buckskin pouch, its surface glazed with the grease and soot of many campfires. He had seen men carry their tobacco in just such pouches, but this pouch held no tobacco. It had thumped the bar heavily and lay like a sack of sand. The bartender untied the strings and stood with the pouch poised above the scales, while his eyes roved over the eager, expectant faces of the crowd. Then he placed a small weight upon the pan of the scales and poured something slowly from the pouch into the small scoop upon the opposite side. From his position Brent could see the delicate scales oscillate and finally strike a balance. The bartender closed the pouch and handed it back to the owner. Then he picked up the scales and returned them to their place beside the cash register, while in front of the bar men surged about the pouch owner, clawing and shoving to get next to him, and all talking at once, nobody paying the slightest attention to the bartenders who were vainly trying to serve a round of drinks. The head bartender returned to his position opposite Brent, and, reaching for the decanter, poured himself a drink. "'Drink up and have one on the stranger. He just set him up to the house.' Brent swallowed the liquor in his glass and refilled it. "'What's the excitement?' he asked. "'A man don't ordinarily get as popular as he seems to be just because he buys a round of drinks, does he?' "'Didn't you see it? It ain't the round of drink. It's—wait!' He stepped to the back bar, and, lifting the scoop from the scales, set it down in front of Brent. "'That's what it is. Gold. Yes, sir, pure gold, just as she comes from the sand, nuggets and dust. It's been many a year since any of that stuff has been passed over this bar for the drinks.' I've been here seven years, and it's the first I've took in, except now and then a few colors that some ombre washed out of some dry coulee or creek bed. Fine dust that's cost him the shovelin' and pannin' of tons of gravel. Patsy keeps the scales settin' around for a curiosity, that and because the old-timers like to see him handy. 
kind of reminds him of the early days and starts him gassin but this here's the real stuff look at that boy he poked with his finger at an irregular nugget the size of a navy bean looks like a chunk of slag and that ain't all he's got a bag full of em i held it in my hand and it weighed pounds as brent stood looking down at the grains of yellow metal in the little scoop a strange uneasiness stirred deep within him he picked up the nugget and held it in the palm of his hand one side of it was flat as though polished by a thousand years of water wear and the other side was rough and fire-eaten as though fused by a mighty heat brent had seen plenty of gold coined gold gold fashioned by the goldsmith's art and gold in bricks and ingots in the production of which he himself had been a factor yet never before had the sight of gold moved him it had been merely a valuable metal which it was his business to help extract from certain rocks by certain processes of chemistry and expensive machinery yet here in his hand was a new kind of gold gold that seemed to reach into the very heart of him with a personal appeal raw gold gold that had known the touch of neither chemicals nor machinery but that had been wrestled by the bare hands of a man from some far place where the fires of a glowing world and the glacial ice drift had fashioned it the vague uneasiness that had stirred him at sight of the yellow grains flamed into a mighty urge at its touch he too would go and get gold and he would get it not by process of brain but by process of brawn not by means of chemicals and machinery but by slashing into the sides of mountains and ripping the guts out of creeks carefully he returned the nugget to the scoop and as he raised his eyes to the bartenders he moistened his lips with his tongue where did he get it he asked huskily god man if i'd known that i wouldn't be standing here would i he jerked his thumb toward the rear of the room where the men were frenziedly crowding the stranger that's what they all want to know lord if he let the word slip what a stampede there'd be every man for himself and the devil take the hindmost out of every hundred that's in an a stampede about one makes a stake and ten gets their ante back and the rest goes broke they all know what they're going up against but the damned fools every one of em would stake all they've got and their life throwed in to be in on it it's the lure of gold muttered brent i've heard of it but i never felt it before are they damned fools wouldn't you wouldn't i what wouldn't you go along with the rest hell yes and so would anyone else that's got any red guts in em brent poured himself a drink and shoved the decanter toward the other let's liquor he said and then maybe if we can get that fellow away from the crowd where we can talk 
the bartender interrupted the thought before it was expressed. No chance. Take a look at him. Believe me, there's one hombre that ain't going to spill nothing he don't want to. And when a man makes a strike like that, he don't hang around bars running off at the chin about it. Not what you could notice, he don't. Far as I can see, we got just one chance. It's a damn slim one, but you can't always tell what's running in these birds' heads. He asked me if Patsy Kelleher was running this dump, and when I told him he was, he had me send for him. Said he wanted to see him pronto, and then he kind of throwed his eyes around over the faces of the boys, and he says, "'You're all friends of Patsy's?' He seen in a minute how Patsy stood ace-high with them all, and then he says, "'Well, just kind of stick around till Patsy gets down here, and it might be I'll explode something amongst his friends that'll clean this dump out.' "'Now, you might take that two ways, but he don't look like one of these, what you might call, anarchists, does he?' And when he said that, he laughed, and he says, belly up to the bar and i'll buy a little drink and i'll pay for it with coarse gold well you seen how much drinkin they done and here's patsy now brent turned and nodded greeting as the proprietor of the ore dump entered the door is it yourself that sent for me mr brent you spalpeen he grinned being a gentleman yourself you'll be knowin I'd still be at me newspaper and cigar. What's on your mind that you'll be dragging a man from the bosom of his family before lunch? It ain't him, explained the bartender. It's the stranger. I told him you didn't never show up till after dinner, but lunch, damn it, lunch. Kelleher's fist smote the bar, and as he scowled into the face of his head bartender, Brent detected a twinkle in the deep-set blue eyes. Didn't the old woman beat that same into me own head awake after we'd moved into the big house? And she done it with a tree-calf concordance to Shakespeare's wild gold edges that sets on the par. Living room table? Tis a handy and useful weapon, a worthy substitute, as the feller says, to the plebeian rolling pin and frying pan. Them tree calves has got a hide on em like the bottom of a sluice box. I bet they could make anvils out of the hide of a full-growed tree bull. Go on now and trot out this ill-fared magpie that must be at his chattering before the break of day. At a motion from the bartender, the crowd parted to allow the stranger to make his way to the front, surged together behind him, and followed ranging itself in a semicircle at a respectful distance. Thus, with the two principals, Brent found himself included within this semicircle of excited faces. The two eyed each other for a moment in silence, the stranger with a smile half-veiled by his sunburned mustache, and Kelleher with a frankly puzzled expression upon his face, as his thick fingers toyed with the heavy gold chain that hung cable-like from pocket to pocket of his gaily-colored vest. "'I figured you wouldn't know me. 
the stranger's grin widened as he noted the look of perplexity. "'And no more I don't,' retorted the other, unconsciously tilting his high silk hat at an aggressive angle over his right eye. "'Let's get the cards on the table. Who are you? And what you got in your head that you couldn't keep there till after lunch?' "'I'm McBride.' Brent saw that the name conveyed nothing to the other, whose puzzled frown deepened. "'You're McBride.' The tone was good-naturedly sarcastic. "'Well, you'd have still been McBride this afternoon, if you'd been let live that long. But who the devil's McBride, that I should come tearing down to look into the ugly mug of him?' The stranger laughed. Nine years ago, McBride was the night telegraph operator over in the yards. That was before you moved up here. You was still in the little dump over on Fagin Street, and you'd done most of the work yourself. Used to open up mornings. There wasn't no big diamonds shining in the middle of your bald-faced shirt them days. I doubt and you owned a bald-faced shirt, except maybe for Sundays. Anyhow, you'd be openin' up in the mornin' when I'd be goin' off trick, and I most generally stopped in for a couple of drinks or so. And one mornin', when I'd downed three or four, I noticed you kind of givin' me the once-over. There wasn't no one else in the place, and you come over and leaned your elbows on the bar, and you says, "'You're goin' kind of heavy on that stuff, son,' you says." "'What the hell's the difference?' I says. "'I ain't got only six months to live, and I might as well enjoy what I can of it.' "'Are they going to hang you in six months?' you asks. "'Have you got your sentence?' "'I've got my sentence,' I says. "'But it ain't hanging. The doctor's sentenced to me. It's the con.' "'To hell with the doctors,' you says. "'They don't know it all. We'll fool them. All you need is to get out in the mountains and lay off the hooch. I laughed at you. Me go to the mountains, I says. Why, man, I ain't hardly got strength to get to my room and back to the job again, and couldn't even make that if it wasn't for the hooch. That's right, you says. From the job to the room and the room to the job, you'll last maybe six months. But I'm doubting it. But the mountains is different. And then you goes on and talks mountains and gold till you got me interested, and you offers to grubstake me for a trip to the Kootenay country. You claimed it was a straight business proposition, fifty-fifty if I made a strike, and you put up the money against my time. The stranger paused and smiled as a subdued ripple of whisperings went from man to man, as he mentioned the Kootenay. Then he looked Kelleher squarely in the face. "'There wasn't no gold in the Kootenay,' he said simply. "'Or leastwise I couldn't find none. I figured someone had been stringing you.' Patsy Kelleher shifted the hat to the back of his head and laughed out loud as his little eyes twinkled with merriment. "'I get you now, son.' he said. I mind the white face, have you? 
and the chest bowed in like the bottom of a washbowl, and your shoulders struck out befront you like the horns of a cow. He paused as his eyes ran the lines of sinewy leanness and came to rest upon the sun-bronzed face. So you made a failure of the trip, have you? A plumb clean failure, and I'm out the couple of hundred it cost me for the grub stake. It cost you more than five hundred, interrupted the other. I was in bad shape, and there was things I needed that other men wouldn't have that I don't need, now. Well, five hundred, thin. And how long has it been ago? Nine years. Kelleher laughed. Who was right, me or the damn doctors? You've lived eighteen times as long as they was going to let you live already, and have me eyes deceived me right, you ain't ordered no coffin yet. No, I ain't ordered no coffin. I come here to hunt you up and pay you back. Kelleher laughed. There ain't nothing to pay, son. You don't owe me a cent. A grubstake's a grubstake, and no one ever yet said Patsy Kelleher welched on a bargain. Besides, I guess you got all I sent you after. I know damn well there wasn't no gold in the Kootenay. None that a tenderfoot lunger can find. McBride laughed. Sure, I knew after I'd been there six months what you'd done it for. I doped it all out. But, as you say, a grubstake's a grubstake, and no time limit on it. And no one ever said Jim McBride ever welched on a bargain, neither. I ain't never been just ready to come back and settle with you till now. I drifted north and farther north till I wound up in the Yukon country. I prospected around there and had pretty good luck. I'd got back my strength and my health till right now there ain't but damn few men in the big country that can hit the trail with Jim McBride. But I wasn't never satisfied with what I was taking out. I knowed there was something big somewheres up there. I could feel it, and I played for the big stake. Others stuck by stuff that was panning em out wages. I didn't. They called me a fool, and I let em. I struck up river at last, and they laughed, but they ain't laughing now. Me and a squaw man named Carmack hunted moose together over on Bonanza. One day Carmack was scratching around the roots of a big birch tree, and just for fun he gets to monkeying with my pan. The man paused, and Brent could hear the suppressed breathing of the miners, who had crowded close. His eyes swept their faces, and he saw that every eye in the house was staring into the face of McBride as they hung upon his every word. He realized suddenly that he himself was waiting in a fever of impatience for the man to go on. Then I come into camp, and we both fooled with the pan, but we didn't fool long. God, man, we was shaking it out of the grassroots. Coarse gold. I stayed at it a month, and I've filed on every creek within ten miles of that lone birch tree. 
Then I come outside to find you and settle. He paused, and his eyes swept the room. These men friends of yourn? he asked. Kelleher nodded. Well, then, I'm letting them in. Right here starts the biggest stampede the world ever seen. Some of the old-timers that was already up there are into the stuff now, but in the spring the whole world will be getting in on it. Kelleher was the only self-possessed man in the room. "'What'll she run to the pan?' he asked. "'Run to the pan? God knows. We thought she was big when she hit an ounce.' "'An ounce to the pan?' cried Kelleher. "'Man, you're crazy!' The other continued, "'And we thought she was little when she run a hundred dollars, two hundred. I've washed out six hundred dollars to the pan, and I ain't no bedrock.' And then he began to empty his pockets. One after another the little buckskin sacks thudded upon the bar. Ten, fifteen, twenty of them. McBride spoke to Kelleher, who stared with incredulous bulging eyes. "'That's your share of what I've took out. You're filed along with me as full partner in all the claims I've got. They's millions in them claims, and more millions for the men that gets there first. He paused and turned to the men of the crowd who stood silent, with tense white faces, and staring eyes glued on the pile of buckskin sats. "'Beat it, you gravel hogs!' he cried. "'It's the biggest strike that ever was. Hit for Seattle, go by Dye Beach and over the Chilkoot and take a thousand pounds of outfit, or you'll die. A hell of a lot of you'll die anyhow, but some of you'll win, and win big. Over the Chilkoot, down through the lakes, and down the Yukon to Dawson. A high-pitched, unnatural yell, animal-like in its nervous excitement, broke from a throat in the crowd, and the next instant pandemonium broke loose in Kelleher's, and Carter Brent fought his way to the door through a howling mass of madmen and struck out for his boarding house at a run. End of chapter one. Recording by Roger Moline.